hours, the light of the morning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, and covereth the whole earth, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Therefore sanctify yourselves, that your minds become single to God, and the days will come that you shall see him. For he will unveil his face unto you, and it shall be in his own time, and in his own way, and according to his own will. This is Unveiling Jesus Christ. Hello, and welcome to another podcast on Unveiling Jesus Christ. I'm John Cassinette, and uh, as I was beginning this podcast, I got to thinking a little bit about my introduction, and, you know, I kind of say the same thing every week, and uh, my family and I are big fans of the movie called The Saint, and it got me to thinking a little bit about uh, Trediak, the oligarch who's trying to take over Russia, and he's doing this speech on live TV, and he starts out his speech saying, friends, countrymen, Russians. So I was thinking, well, maybe I should start out my podcast something like Friends, Christians, Podcasties, <laughs> or not. <laughs> you know, another funny kind of quote um, that uh, I used to say a lot to my uh, st seminary students from The Saint also is, keep in mind you've got this early morning seminary out in Sacramento, California, and uh, these kids are, you know, pulling in... Um, in all kinds of shape at 6.15 in the morning and, uh, you know, sometimes kind of trying to pull them out of it. And I, I think of the uh, one uh, segment in The Saint where Simon uh, is meeting with Trediak and his son at a cozy transit lounge at the uh, airport in uh, Germany. And uh, Sonny is uh, having the conversation with uh, Simon and uh, Sonny is telling Simon that they can have a man killed even in a cozy transit lounge. <laughs> and when Sonny says that, uh, Simon, who's the saint, of course, says, Oh, it's so early. You guys want to get some coffee or something? <laughs> And I used to use that on my uh, seminary students when they were acting all drowsy and, uh, you know, they just couldn't quite get in the groove. I'd say, oh, it's so early. You want to get some coffee or something? <laughs> the first time, of course, you say that, your students are all, their ears are all perked up. What? I, I thought this was an LDS seminary class and he's telling us to go out and get coffee? <laughs> But at any rate, uh, I assure you, I, I wasn't teaching the students that they should be drinking coffee. I was just trying to make the point of how early it is and how we needed to kind of wake up. <laughs> so today, as we begin our uh, podcast uh, this week, we're uh, talking about Revelation 2, uh, verses 12 and 13. It corresponds with section 20 in my book, uh, for those of you who are following that. And uh, this is uh, a topic and subject that concerns the commendations to the saints in Pergamos. So this is our first uh, verse that we're going to be dealing with, the third church of seven in uh, John's letters. And uh, if we pull up our uh, what is becoming our world-famous map, you'll notice that Pergamos is, uh, again, further north of Smyrna, and it's also inland by about 15 to 20 miles from the Aegean Sea. It was a city that was kind of famous for its 200,000-volume library that Mark Antony gifted to uh, Cleopatra of uh, Egypt. 
This was the city which was the first to make uh, sheepskin parchment, and uh, the name parchment is derived from the word Pergamos, or the name of the city. It was a natural fortress and uh, home to various rulers that had vast wealth. It was originally the capital of Asia Minor, but when Smyrna uh, became kind of a rising economic power, the uh, political capital shifted over to Smyrna um, because it was more commercially important, had the great harbor on the Aegean Sea. But uh, Pergamos continued to be the religious center in Asia Minor. Today it's uh, known by the name of Bergama in uh, modern Turkey, and so Bergama is kind of a corruption of the ancient name of Pergamos, and uh, again located in uh, modern Turkey. Um, for more information about the geopolitical setting of uh, this particular city, check out my podcast uh, on the Come Follow Me podcast number seven from uh, November uh, 12th of uh, 2023. So let's roll into a discussion now of the church itself and the members of the church in uh, Pergamos by looking at Revelation chapter 2 verse 12 which states, quote, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. Now, to begin our discussion here, keep in mind that the word angel in this verse and every other verse pertaining to angels in the seven cities, uh, the Joseph Smith translation changes the word angel to the word servant. And so essentially this letter, as in all other cases, is addressed to the servant of the church or the leader, probably the most common name would be the uh, bishop. Now, with regard to the church itself, essentially all that we really know about the ancient church in Pergamos is what we learn from this letter that's written by John here in the book of Revelation. We don't know specifically who the leader of the church was, although uh, there is a tradition according to the writings of Eusebius from the fourth century that it was a guy by the name of Corpus uh, who suffered uh, martyrdom in the city. If you take a look at uh, the condition of the ruins in Pergamos, they're somewhat interesting. A lot of them date back to the fourth century when Constantine adopted Christianity as the state religion of the Roman Empire. He did a lot of uh, building of Christian churches and tearing down pagan temples uh, and places of pagan worship at the same time. And so what you find in Pergamos by way of some of the ancient ruins are going to be some of the Christian churches that are more prevalent and prominent than uh, pagan temples because they were cast down during the time of uh, Constantine and thereafter. So the religion generally in Pergamos consisted of multiple pagan temples. As I mentioned a moment ago, it's kind of a religious center and a very prominent temple and God among the saints uh, or city of Pergamos was the healing god Asclepius, and so he was considered the god of uh, medicine. His emblem or his symbol was two interlaced serpents on a rod, which today serves as the emblem for the American Medical Association. At this particular temple, uh, there was a live serpent that was kept and fed and worshipped in the temple, and I could tell you one thing for sure. If Jan and I had lived in that day, and that's the place of worship, you would never catch Jan worshipping in the temple of Asclepius because she hates snakes. 
<laughs> so at any rate, no worries about her falling into uh, pagan worship uh, if what the worship involves is a live snake. So at any rate, so Asclepius uh, was this god of medicine and healing, and the practice of medicine back in those days led to a lot of immorality and wickedness. These practices were mixed with the mysteries and healing arts in the form of witchcraft and uh, other things like this. And so uh, anytime you have this concept of healing, that's always associated with fertility and things that are life-giving. And so uh, that uh, involves the, the reproductive organs and hence this uh, fascination and fanaticism with with uh, immorality and uh, ritualistic prostitution, which were occurring in this and virtually all other pagan temples as well. So as we move down and we look at the individual phrases in uh, this verse, we have the statement uh, that says, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. And when you first read this, it, you, it strikes you as a kind of ominous salutation. It's not like we have to read the rest of the letter because as soon as we hear about a sword with two sharp edges, you're thinking to yourself, oh, this doesn't sound good. This doesn't bode well. Right? And so you're just kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop, uh, which will be Christ's rebuke for being tolerant of the evil and immorality that exists in the uh, city of Pergamos. But for the time being and starting out, um, we're going to get some good news for the saints in Pergamos, which I'll get to presently. But this idea of a sharp sword with two edges is something we kind of want to look at just a little bit because it's a symbolic representation of the Word of God or the sword of the Spirit and it is a representation of how this instrument can cut both ways so it can be both a sword of salvation as well as a sword of death depending on which side you're on when it's going back and forth going one to the good to save going bad to the other to destroy the wicked and so we find a modern representation of this same symbol in the Doctrine and Covenants in section 6-2 which states quote behold I am God Give heed unto my word, which is quick and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword. Close quote. So this same message is repeated in multiple sections of the Doctrine and Covenants, and so it is a symbol that is very much applicable to us today, even though it certainly has its genesis back here in Revelation chapter 2 with the saints in Pergamos. We also find in Revelation chapter 1 verse 16 where it states, quote, And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Close quote. Now notice here that we're seeing the same titles and attributes of Christ that we saw in Revelation 1. Uh, they're now adapted, however, to the condition in the church at Pergamos, and it's true of all the churches. That is, uh, every one of the seven churches have certain attributes that are identified that relate back to the attributes, titles, and characteristics of Christ as described in Revelation chapter 1. So, for example, with Ephesus, we had the seven stars in the right hand of Christ who was in the midst of the saints. And in Pergamos, we have the sharp sword 
uh, representative of his power to punish the saints, which we saw, as I read a moment ago, in Revelation 1.16. The difference in the two is in Revelation 1.16, there is a reference to the sword that actually comes out of the mouth of the Savior, representative of his power to punish. We Here we don't have a reference to the mouth, but it's the same imagery. And the reason why the image of his mouth is used in connection with the sword, because the sword represents the word of God, hence coming out of the mouth. And so uh, that's essentially what we're talking about. But at the same time, the sword is a good representation of the attributes of what existed in the city of Pergamos because it was the seat of Roman authority and the sword was a symbol of the highest order of authority. So that means that essentially the Roman proconsul who was seated at the city of Pergamos as his seat of authority had the power of life and death, meaning he had the power to uh, award or order capital punishment and including Christians. And so uh, that correlates back to Christ who has the ultimate power and authority greater than what any proconsul of the Roman Empire might have. And so uh, at the same time that the proconsul had his seat in uh, Pergamos, it was also the center of the state religion of Rome where the emperors were worshipped almost with a certain degree of fanaticism and Christians essentially had to adhere to the practice of emperor worship or they can they could suffer death and so essentially it's a religion that was imposed upon them by the sword and so here we get the countervailing or anti-typical thought that Christ announces that in his mouth is a sharp two-edged sword meaning more powerful than the Roman sword that you might be wielding and so it come to, kind of comes down to a question about uh, which sword are you more concerned about <laughs> and the spiritual always trumps the physical. Uh, the sword of the spirit is much more deadly because it is a sword of both life and death, uh, speaking particularly about spiritual life and spiritual death. Now, the reason why <clears throat> Pergamos tended to become uh, the center of uh, worship in uh, Asia Minor was because the first temple dedicated to Caesar was built here in the city of Pergamos and from there it just kind of expanded and uh, so in Revelation 2.13 that we'll get into uh, in our next podcast uh, the Savior describes Pergamos as the place where Satan's throne is and uh, so this is all kind of uh, tied together and as I mentioned it's also the place where these pagan temples were hewn down by the Turks and so temples like Jupiter, Diana, Asclepius, and Venus, they're all kind of uh, in the dust and uh, cut into uh, tombstones and things to make mortar. And uh, so that's what ultimately happened to this center of uh, Satan, uh, where the religious center was. So the a sword also potentially has some allusion 
to the sword that was used to block the way of Balaam. And again, this is referred to in a verse that we're going to talk about in the next podcast. And I'll just quote the verse so you can see why we're talking about this very briefly now. In Revelation 2.14, it says, I have a few things against thee, speaking of the saints in Pergamos, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. And I've talked about Balaam in connection with the Nicolaitans when we were talking about the uh, church in uh, Ephesus and how the Ephesian saints hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And here Nicholas uh, was a name that had a similar meaning as the word Balaam in the Old Testament. So these things all start to kind of connect together. But more to the point, in Numbers chapter 22, verses 23 and again in 31, there is a reference to how Balaam saw this uh, angel as he was en route to take action and pronounce a curse upon the Israelites. And all of a sudden he sees this angel with this sword prepared to prevent him in his journey against the Israelites. And so that's why we have this connection where it's talking about Balaam in verse 14 and this concept of the sword associated with Balaam. So again, I'm going to talk about that in a little bit more detail in the next podcast, but I'm just trying to show how the sword has this specific application to things going on in Pergamos and uh, the beliefs that existed, the religious center that existed, and so on and so forth. So, with that as kind of an introduction to the uh, concept of the sword, let's now move on to uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 13, where the Savior says, quote, I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast to my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. Now, the Lord, of course, knows the works of the saints in Pergamos, where he says, I know thy works. That same statement is made in all seven letters to all seven churches. And so he knows that their works there, as in all churches, as he knows our works today. Then he talks about that uh, the place where the Pergamos saints dwell, which he describes even where Satan's seat is. And so Christ is not unmindful of how difficult their circumstances are. And to a certain extent, it appears that Christ recognizes that the duty of loyalty and fidelity and the measure of obedience needs to be viewed in the context of the place where they're actually dwelling. And so here where they're essentially living, where Satan's seat is and where Satan dwelleth, it's a pretty high compliment to be telling these saints that you have held fast to my name and you haven't denied my faith. And so uh, think about that a little bit in the context in which we now live today. We who live in the Utah area, um, which in many respects could be called the uh, seat of uh, the kingdom of God here upon the earth, at least at the present time. And how are we doing? How is our loyalty, our fidelity, and our obedience in relationship to a place where really it's very, very easy 
to be loyal, to be obedient and all of these kinds of good things. And uh, how are we doing? Because uh, if we're not doing very well in a place where it's very easy to practice your beliefs, then you're not meriting the kind of commendations that the Pergamo saints did where they were faithful under much harsher conditions. And the same can be true of, you know, how are you Californians doing? How are you people down in the Southeast in the Bible Belt doing? How are you doing in Russia? friends <laughs> or in communist China. I mean, the Christ's grace is sufficient and he makes accommodations for our faithfulness based on the conditions that we find ourselves living. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that, you know, if you're living in a place where it is hard to exercise faith and to be obedient, he's going to give you a pass and you don't have to be obedient. No, that's not it at all. And if we look at Doctrine and Covenants section 131, this dispels any such notion of that type, which says, quote, For I, the Lord cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. Nevertheless, he that repents and does the commandments of the Lord shall be forgiven." Close quote. So as you can see in this verse, there is no allowance for sin. But I do think where it says, nevertheless, so he's kind of carving out a little bit of, not an exception per se, but a recognition that he that repents under very, very difficult circumstances and does the commandments under very difficult circumstances, the Lord is going to forgive. And I think that because of his grace, uh, he can cut you a little bit of slack. Um, I, I tend to think that that might be the way that it works a little bit. And so uh, for those who live where it should be and is easy to be obedient, um, it's not going to be so good for you. And we find that in Doctrine and Covenants section 82.3, where the Lord says, quote, For of him unto whom much is given, much is required. And he who sins against the greater light shall receive the greater condemnation. Close quote. So, uh, again, it, it kind of takes into consideration our circumstances, both our spiritual gifts, the kind of tribulations, trials, temptations that we are faced with, depending on uh, where we live and the circumstances in which we live. And so are you sinning uh, while you live in the proximity of the seat of God's kingdom on the earth? Or are you sinning in a place where it's very, very difficult not to sin? Uh, I think those are things that uh, you need to give some considerate and do a little bit of uh, introspection and uh, looking within yourself to see how you're doing and uh, keep that in mind. So what is it that was the condition in Pergamos that would cause Christ to refer to it as Satan's seat? So uh, keeping in mind also that uh, Pergamos, where it refers to Satan's seat, actually means throne. So the, the Greek word, if they had to do it all over again, rather than call it Satan's seat, you'd actually refer to it as Satan's throne. And that stands in contrast to the, uh, the, the throne of God. And it's intended to represent the idea that it was a kingly throne. It is Satan having the power to exercise great dominion there in Pergamos. It's like a, a judicial tribunal or a bench that was aligned against the saints in Pergamos. And it was the seat of the elders in the synagogues and uh, that had authority and could exercise control over the saints. Uh, you can 
kind of compare it to uh, what Isaiah describes in chapter 14, verses 12 and 13, about Lucifer in the premortality where he rose up and rebelled against the Father and the Son in the Grand Council. And this is what Isaiah said, quote, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cat cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend unto heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north." Close quote. Now we're going to get into this discussion of this verse in more detail uh, when we get to chapter 12 in uh, the book of Revelation where we talk about premortality. But, but you can see here how Satan was trying to ascend uh, his throne even above the throne of God and uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in more detail. So that <clears throat> is a kind of a comparison here of the wicked religious capital that existed in Pergamos. And the reason why we refer to it as the religious capital is because essentially it exported its wickedness to other cities in Asia Minor. So you get these people that would be making these pilgrimages to Pergamos to worship in the pagan temples. You get a lot of people who were invalids, uh, the sick or the afflicted. I mean, this was the place if you uh, had a headache when you wake up in the morning, well, I better go to the temple in Pergamos make <laughs> sure that Asclepius can uh, take care of me. And so you've got all of these people coming and it becomes a center for idolatry that then gets exported back out to other people as they return to uh, their cities. And uh, it was also a, a center for a great conflict for these reasons against the Christians in Asia Minor. We also learn, uh, and that exists in uh, the city today, this enormous altar that was dedicated to uh, the god Zeus uh, that has an actual kind of an appearance of a throne. And when we talk about the size of this thing, it's 120 by 112 feet in size. So that's just this massive thing. And, and so it might be in part uh, the reference that uh, Christ is making to this being the seat or the throne of Satan is this very throne that existed as a monument to the god Zeus. And so the uh, fact that uh, Pergamos was a center for religion is also reflected in its coinage from this period that shows uh, Pergamum and uh, its religious beliefs uh, set forth in the embossings upon its uh, coins. And it's also the place where Christians were brought for trial because of their Christian beliefs and where the uh, <clears throat> sentence of death could be pronounced by the proconsul uh, because people would refuse to uh, denounce uh, Jesus Christ. And so uh, when you think about the, uh, the temple of Asclepius, you have here um, the uh, serpent, uh, which is an emblem of the uh, healing God. And, and I've talked about that a little bit. And this, this goes back to uh, a worship of Satan. And uh, if you go back to, uh, interestingly enough, to uh, the Joseph Smith translation in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 4, it talks about the actions taken by Hezekiah to remove these types of images. And it says, quote, Hezekiah, he, Hezekiah, 
remove the high places and break the images and cut down the groves and break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it, and he called it Nehushtan. And so uh, you have Hezekiah, who was a righteous judge in the Old Testament, and he saw that the people had taken this image that Christ had uh, uh, used at the time of Moses and caused him to build the brazen uh, serpent that he placed on a staff that the children of Israel look at, and they are healed. And so this, the Israelites had ch transformed that into a pagan idol, and they burned incense to it the way that uh, pagans would burn incense to uh, their gods. And so uh, that's why Hezekiah had to tear it down. But obviously the image survived, and uh, the pagans adopted what uh, the uh, Savior had done with Moses uh, and the serpents in the wilderness. But the, the, the symbol or sign of uh, Satan as a serpent even goes back really even further, clear back to the Garden of Eden, where the uh, serpent became a symbol of Satan because it was more subtle than all the other beasts that, uh, of the earth. Um, but it's clear, uh, if you go back to that period of time, that the serpent at some point began as a good symbol. Uh, the serpent is uh, associated with the crucifixion and the atonement, and you have to sit there and kind of ask yourself, why in the world would Christ direct Moses to use a serpent as the symbol for the crucifixion and atonement of Jesus Christ when he had to make the brazen uh, serpent and, and put it up on the rod. And the reason is, is because anciently, um, the serpent was actually a serpent for the symbol of Jesus Christ himself. And so uh, over the course of time, many decades, centuries, millennia, the, the serpent had been transformed into this image of evil associated with Satan. And so as always, Satan, who is the great imitator, uh, is using a symbol that had a good origin and is transforming it into an, an image that is evil. Now, if you go back and you look at Revelation 2.8, which was a verse which we talked about in connection with the, the city of Smyrna, Christ identified himself as, quote, the first and the last, which was dead and is alive, close quote. So this is him specifically identifying himself. Now, connect that with the symbol used in the temple of Asclepius and the American Medical Association, where you have two serpents wrapped around this rod, one of the serpents representing life and the other serpent representing death. And so Christ himself is saying, I'm he who was dead and is alive. And the serpent, one's alive. One is the symbol of life. One is the symbol of death. And so you can start to see where we get these crossovers that exist and uh, how Satan has essentially perverted a true symbol into the image of himself and to represent himself. Think also about the uh, the legend or tradition of Quetzalcoatl uh, that was had among the uh, American Indians, or basically the uh, the uh, offspring of what we understand to be the Nephites and the Lamanites, and they have this legend of uh, Quetzalcoatl as a feathered what 
serpent, <laughs> okay? Um, and so he became the symbol for the great white God. And you, you ha again, you kind of have to ask yourself, why in the world would anybody use the uh, a feathered serpent as a symbol of the great white God who we recognize was Jesus Christ who visited the ancient Americans as described in third Nephi. And the reason is again, is because the serpent was at one point uh, representative of good and representative of uh, Jesus Christ himself. So that's a little bit about this whole notion of the uh, serpent and and how it applies to the imagery that we're looking at here in uh, Revelation 2:12. Now, <clears throat> let's look at this phrase where the saint where the savior is commending the saints in Pergamos because quote thou holdest fast my name and has not denied my faith, close quote. So again, this is a commendation of these saints despite the extreme wickedness uh, that existed in the city of Pergamos. This is a city where Christians would be sentenced to prison or death, um, and one of the only ways that they could save themselves was by cursing Christ or by engaging in emperor worship. And so when we're talking here about this notion that they hold fast to the name of Jesus Christ, that's literally something that is the difference of life and death to them. And those that refuse to deny the faith uh, were put to death. And so what does it mean to really hold fast? Well, that's a pretty good illustration of the kind of commitment that it takes to hold fast to the name of Christ. It basically means we take upon ourselves his burdens, his characteristics, and we uh, enter into a covenant relationship with him that when we get to that point where we have to make a life or death choice of that nature, it becomes no choice at all. We've already made that decision when we enter into this covenant relationship with the Savior, and we've already made the choice that we will do not deny the faith even when times get uh, really, really hard. And so we know that uh, those that uh, openly profess themselves as disciples and followers of Christ were faced with these kind of trials and this life and death choice uh, when they were living at the time that this letter was written by John to the saints in Pergamos. And we know this because of a guy by the name of Pliny. Uh, he was the governor of uh, Bithynia, and uh, he was born in about 61 AD and died in about 113 AD. And so he's a, a guy that wrote hundreds of letters, and 247 of them still exist. He's also known as Pliny the Younger. He was a lawyer, he was an author, he was a magistrate, and his provincial capital was in Northwest Asia Minor, in what today would be called the city of Izmit in modern Turkey. And so in his some of his letters that he writes, he speaks about the Christians, and one in particular was a letter that he wrote to the Emperor Trajan, and so this is going to kind of mark, we don't have the date of this letter specifically, but uh, given the time period in which the Emperor Trajan lived and crossing that over with the time when uh, Pliny was alive, we have this letter being written between 98 and 113 AD. Again, keep in mind that John wrote his letter in 96 AD. So this is what the letter of Pliny says. It says, quote, they, referring to the Christians, 
assemble on certain days before sunrise to sing hymns of praise to Christ their God. They submit to torture and death rather than invoke the gods. Close quote. So that's Pliny's description of Christians as he writes his letter to Trajan, the emperor in Rome, about these Christians. And, and, and it's a it's a pretty good commendation for them. Uh, they submit to torture and death rather than invoke the gods. In other words, rather than deny Christ, rather than agreeing to uh, worship Caesar, uh, they would rather die. And so you have to keep in mind, of course, that that wasn't necessarily universal. <laughs> because uh, we know of one letter that uh, Pliny wrote to Trajan, and this one is dated in 112 AD, where Pliny is essentially asking, how am I supposed to deal with these Christians? Because Pliny's obviously a reasonably good guy. He doesn't want to put them to death. And so in this particular letter that he's writing to Trajan, he says that the same Essentially, he doesn't view the Christians as being a great danger to the empire, and they are dying out. He says, some have offered incense to Caesar and have cursed Christ in order to avoid the death penalty. All right, so this is the same Pliny who said, yeah, they'll submit to torture, but not all of them. All right, and some will in, offer incense to a Caesar, and it's kind of interesting that he actually says that they were a uh, a group that was dying out because that's very consistent with our modern day beliefs that by the turn of the first century A.D., the apostasy had a stranglehold on the Christian religion, and this is confirmed by Pliny in his letter to Trajan in 112 AD. So eventually, the emperor sends a response to Pliny, and this is what Trajan said about how to deal with the Christians. And again, this is in the time period of about 112 AD. He says, quote, These people must not be sought after. If they are brought before you and convicted, let them be capitally punished, yet with this restriction, that if anyone renounce Christianity and evidence his sincerity by supplicating our gods, however suspected he may be for the past, he shall obtain pardon for the future on his repentance." Close quote. So that's what the uh, the saints in Pergamos, including this man Antipas that we're going to talk about here in a moment, were faced with. Uh, if uh, the uh, Christianship belief of a person was made known to Pliny, and that happened frequently because the Jews were more than happy to complain about uh, Christians and saying they're doing this, they're doing that, they won't worship, blah, blah, blah. Uh, again, the Jews became the great persecutors, and all they had to do was report them to the Romans. And now we see the uh, uh, policy of Trajan, the Roman emperor at that time, was, okay, we're going to leave them alone, but if somebody complains and the complaint is brought to you, if they're convicted, you have to kill them. <laughs> Unless they renounce their Christianity. And so that's that's what the saints in Pergamos were, uh, were faced with. And so now let's look to the next phrase in this particular verse where there's this reference that uh, in the days of Antipas, uh, he was a faithful martyr who was slain among the saints in Pergamos. Now, what we know about Antipas as a faithful martyr among the Pergamos saints is very little. We don't have any other scriptural account of who this faithful disciple was. Uh, there is a tradition 
that he was the bishop at Pergamos, obviously before the time of John's letter, because the letter refers to the fact that he's already dead. Uh, Eusebius, one of our Christian fathers, uh, records without any further support or any source of where the information comes from, that Antipas was slain in a tumult by the Asclepian priests. Um, ultimately, he was venerated, uh, and the, the Greek church dedicates April 11 as uh, his day. So if you happen to think on April 11th, uh, oh, this is the day for Antipas. <laughs> so there is a, an old uh, writing called the Acts of Antipas, and this does make him a uh, bishop of Pergamos, but this is one of the reasons why <clears throat> sometimes you have to be kind of suspect about some of these writings, because according to the ancient writing called the Acts of Antipas, he was put to death by being enclosed in a burning brazen bull, and there is no record of any kind that the Roman Empire ever used that type of method for putting someone to death. And so that's why you kind of got to scratch your head a little bit and take a little bit uh, with a grain of salt. But the bottom line is that these saints in Pergamos were undoubtedly familiar with the story of Antipas and how he had been martyred. And they knew that story at the time that John wrote his letter to the saints in Pergamos. But uh, one of the things that I think about is more importantly, in other words, more important than the fact that the saints knew about Antipas is the fact that Christ knew about Antipas and uh, was using this as an illustration uh, to commend the saints in Pergamos who are familiar with Antipas and know that if you stick to your Christian beliefs, you are going to be killed. And yet he finds in 96 AD that there still are those who are firm in the faith and they will not deny him even fa when faced with uh, potential martyrdom. Now the name Antipas itself, there's some dispute here as well. Generally it is believed that the name means against all or one against many. Uh, but anti is a pretty common prefix which means against and that's where that kind of comes from. But a lot of uh, scholars say they dispute uh, the etymology of this particular name and so while that seems likely that it would make sense that it could be against all or one against many, it's by no more means uniform in thought among theologians and scholars. We do have in the Book of Mormon a reference to Antipas um, and in the Book of Mormon, anti is often associated with a mountain or a hill, those kinds of things. Let's talk about martyrdom for just a little bit before we kind of conclude our discussion today. <clears throat> martyrdom, of course, is a voluntary acceptance of death rather than to forsake Christ and his gospel. And that's what's illustrated by the saints in Pergamos, including Antipas. Uh, it is a supreme earthly sacrifice that shows absolute faith and a desire to do acts of righteousness and receive eternal life. And martyrs of religion, of course, can be found in every age where the gospel exists. Christ himself was a martyr who voluntarily laid down his life according to uh, the plan of the Father. And so as we, we give some thought to these, uh, the idea of martyrdom 
you have to kind of try and put that in today's context because we ask ourselves, what does Antipas and the idea of martyrdom really have to do with me in my life today? Um, it is a reality that we live in a world today where people are willing to forsake Christ for much less than a threat against their life. And uh, we have to kind of ask ourselves, well, does this mean that Christ has lowered his standards? <laughs> um, and he can't do that, of course, because then he would be a respecter of persons. We're all still expected to have the same kind of faith and devotion that the saints had while living in Pergamos. And, and remember the letter that uh, Pliny wrote and that Trajan wrote that, okay, yeah, if they come to our attention, let's kill them unless they renounce the faith. Um, and you have to say, well, we don't have any letters like that. The closest thing that we can come to would probably be the uh, extermination order issued by Governor Boggs in Missouri that drove the saints from the saints uh, from the state in uh, 1838. Um, so <clears throat> we ask ourselves the question, well, what if we are faced with the same circumstances today? Uh, do we have another Boggs issuing a, an extermination order? Do we have Trajan issuing a letter saying, kill them unless they renounce? Um, and uh, so we have to think about that a little bit because I want you to think of this in the context of even though we don't live in circumstances where we are faced with these kind of dangers, I think these kind of uh, stories and what is set forth to the saints in Pergamos is very relevant to what's going on in our lives today. Now, in order for Trajan to convict uh, a person of being a Christian, and what we would say to convict someone of being a Latter-day Saint today, uh, it takes two things, because in the criminal law you have to have two elements. One is the mens rea, which means an intent to commit the crime. The other thing that you have to have is the actus reus. That is some act in furtherance of the crime. You actually have to commit the crime. So in the criminal world, if you have intent to commit a crime, we don't prosecute that uh, in the United States because there isn't an act. But if you have an act and the intent, that's a crime. But on the other hand, if you do something without having the intent to commit the crime, that's not a crime either because you, both elements are required. And so when our prosecutors prosecute somebody, they have to prove that the act occurred. They have to prove that there was an intent to commit the crime. So now if we take that and translate that into what it means to be a Latter-day Saint today, the question is, can you be convicted of being a Latter-day Saint? In order for that to happen, you have to have the intent to be a Latter-day Saint, but you also have to act like a Latter-day Saint. <laughs> if, you don't, if you're not acting like a Latter-day Saint, Trojan is not going to convict you and try and put you to death because, well, they're not acting like a Latter-day Saint. Why? We don't care about them. Okay, but if you have the intent and you have the act, uh, then you're going to be put to death unless you renounce Christianity and evidence by sincerity by su supplementing the other gods of this world. Back in the day, it was the Roman gods, but trust me, there are plenty of gods to worship today, <laughs> and you can supplicate them all and thereby renounce your Christianity 
by these sincere acts. Now, you might be objecting to my hypothetical situation here a little bit because, you know, that could never happen. We're never going to be facing conditions in which we have to make a choice between practicing our religion both by intent and by our actions. Uh, and if we do, if we do that, face with the prospect of capital punishment. Well, let me let me for those of you who are a little bit naysayers on this, let me read to you what it says in Revelation 13, 15. And I know you're saying, oh, don't read me another John, something from John. <laughs> this is what he says, quote, and he, referring to this image of a second beast, had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed, close quote. Now, I'm telling you, we haven't gotten to our discussion of Revelation chapter 13 yet. That's many months away still. But I am telling you this, that this verse applies to the latter days. And the time is coming, according to the prophecy of John, that if we are a people who refuse to worship the image of the beast, we'll talk about what that is, will be killed. This this is a prophecy. So I don't think this is as hypothetical as you think that none of us are ever going to be faced with a situation of life and death choices between our faith in Jesus Christ and our acting like Latter-day Saints and the prospect that we will be killed if we do that. All right. And, and I get your next uh, objection to this is, well, yeah, that's what you're saying. But it's not likely that that's something I'm going to face in my lifetime. All right. And, you know, maybe that maybe that's right. Uh, maybe it's not something that we will face in our lifetimes. John prophesied it. He doesn't give us a specific date. I have my own ideas about when it's going to happen that we'll get to uh, in due course. But here's the question. It's not so much what if it happened to you right now? It's the hypothetical situation of what would you do if you were faced with this type of life and death choice? Not that you are, not that it's, you're on death's doorstep because you're sitting there in front of the executioner trying to make the choice about who you're going to choose, life or death, depending on your religious beliefs. We don't have to be put in that position to make our choice now. And so I, I think in this context a little bit about the the... Revelation and Doctrine and Covenants, section 137, verses 7 through 9, that came to the prophet Joseph Smith after he had a vision of seeing his older brother Alvin in the celestial kingdom, which somewhat amazed him because Alvin was born and died before the gospel was ever restored on the earth. And so Joseph Smith is kind of wondering, how did he get into the celestial kingdom, or why am I seeing him, his image, in the celestial kingdom where he never had the opportunity to receive the ordinance of baptism and those things that are required to qualify one to enter the celestial kingdom. And this is the answer that Joseph Smith got starting in uh, DNC 137, verse 7, quote, Thus came the voice of the Lord unto me, saying, All who have died without a knowledge of this gospel who would have received it if they had been permitted to tarry, shall be heirs of the celestial kingdom of God. Also, all that should die henceforth without a knowledge of it, 
who would have received it with all their hearts shall be heirs of that kingdom. For I, the Lord, will judge all men according to their works, according to the desires of their hearts. Close quote. Now, did you notice in the last statement in this verse, it says the Lord will judge all men according to their works. He's talking here about their actus reus, what I talked about a moment ago. In order to commit a crime, you have to have some act in the commission of the crime. Well, the same is true in terms of your qualifications to get into heaven. You have to have an actus reus if you're going to get into the celestial kingdom according to your works. The second part that he says is according to the desires of their hearts. This is the mens rea. You have to have an intent to commit a crime, but you also have to have an intent to live your life in accordance with the teachings of Jesus Christ so that you can enter into the celestial kingdom. Now, what does this have to do with what we've been talking about? You don't have to even receive the gospel in this life. You don't ever have to have your head sitting on the executioner's block asking you to denounce Christ or to worship the gods of this world because the Lord will judge you according to the desires of your heart. He won't necessarily physically put you in that position. Alvin didn't have to live his life and prove in this world that if I had had the gospel in my life, I would have been faithful. I would have been faithful to the point of allowing myself to be killed and to be martyred rather than to deny Jesus Christ and to deny my faith. He didn't have to have that. And yet he receives the celestial kingdom as though he, based upon his works, based upon the desires of his heart, would have been willing to do so if he had been able to tarry. And so is it true with all of us. We may not be faced with the choices that the saints in Pergamos were faced with. We, not, we might not be an Antipas. We may not be a Joseph Smith or a Hiram Smith who died a martyr's death. But the question is, are we, according to our works and according to the desires of our heart, willing to lose our lives rather than forsake the Savior, Jesus Christ? I think it's a relevant question for us today, even as we live here, many of us, in the heart of uh, the Lord's kingdom in the Utah Valley and in other places where it's easy to believe. Uh, just give some thought to the idea that what if I was living in a place where I couldn't openly practice my religion? Would I be willing to make the sacrifices, including my own life, in order to prove myself faithful to my testimony of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? I hope that we would. I, I hope that I can. I'm not saying that uh, I'm perfect and uh, have the answer just immediately, uh, but uh, hopefully all of us can and will be blessed because of it, as Alvin was blessed with it, even though he didn't have to go through the challenges that some of us have or will or may go through. So thanks for listening, subscribing, sharing. Thanks to Jenna for all the technical stuff. And uh, next week we're going to be talking about these Pergamos saints that we've kind of uh, put up on a pedestal and uh, said they've done some really good things because they were not perfect either, just as we're probably not perfect in our own lives. So next week we'll talk be talking about uh, Revelation chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, where the Savior calls the Pergamos saints to repent because they were engaged in a bit of idol worship. So I'll see you next week. <music>